Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to somebody many of you may recognize from Matt Walsh's documentary, What is a Woman? I'm going to be speaking to Scott Nugent, somebody who was once known as Kelly King, a dynamic, powerful business sales executive consistently leading the sales charts while acquiring countless honors, awards, and accolades, in Nugent's words. At the age of 42, Kelly King transitioned into Scott Nugent, who is a biological woman who presents as male. And that experience fundamentally transformed Nugent's life. Let me read a paragraph from the Gender Dysphoria Alliance. Uh, written by Nugent, quote, I endured medical complication after medical complication due to transgender health care. I lost everything I'd worked for, home, car, savings, career, wife, medical insurance, and most importantly, my faith in myself and God. In a battle to survive, I went from ER to ER, trying to solve a mystery of why my health was failing. I learned firsthand the truth about how dangerous and perilous medical transition really is. I learned the hard way that if you get sick because of transgender health, you will witness physicians throwing their hands up and saying one of two things. Transgender health is experimental and I don't know what's wrong, or you need to go back to the physicians who hurt you in the first place. My medical complications have included seven surgeries, a pulmonary embolism, an induced stressed heart attack, sepsis, a 17-month recurring infection, 16 rounds of antibiotics, three weeks of daily IV antibiotics, arm reconstructive surgery, lung, heart, and bladder damage, insomnia, hallucinations, PTSD, one million in medical expenses, and loss of home, car, career, and marriage. All this, and yet I cannot sue the surgeon responsible, in part because there is no structured, tested, or widely accepted baseline for transgender healthcare. Well, Nugent is probably one of the foremost public figures on this issue now because Nugent testifies across the United States of America at legislatures, at committee hearings, talking to politicians, presenting what actually happened as a result of transition and campaigning against lifelong medicalization for children who suffer enormously as the result of, again, so-called transgender health care. So I've been following Nugent for quite a while. The interview Nugent did on, on Walsh's documentary was incredibly emotional and mauling. Those of you who haven't seen the documentary should do so. But a lot of Nugent's speeches are equally powerful and equally emotional. And many of the things that we get into this interview are as well. I obviously don't agree with Nugent about everything. I come from a Reformed Christian perspective. Nugent comes from the perspective uh, of somebody who identifies as gay, as somebody who is from that community, and as somebody whose experiences are seen through those lenses. And yet, I think that we had a very respectful conversation. I think that hearing Nugent's perspectives was very, very valuable. I'm glad to have heard them because I feel like I can understand uh, that movement better as a result of hearing them. And I think that many of you will find it helpful as well. Without further introduction, here is that conversation. Just to, to kind of start off here, a lot of people will have seen you, of course, not only in Matt Walsh's What is a Woman documentary, but in many of your, your testimonies and now your, your speaking appearances right across the United States. But a lot of people won't know kind of where your story began. Maybe back us up and let us know what started you off on this journey to begin with. Well, gender dysphoria is, um, is a mental illness, right? It's a, it's a disconnect from reality. It's... Um, 
basically believing that you are the opposite sex. Um, and, and that is what I think a lot of people would be surprised to, to find out is that gender dysphoria is actually a rare, uh, a rare mental illness. It's also a brutal mental illness. It's also um, the most of the transgender people that have true uh, gender dysphoria don't do well after medical transition. Um, I don't have uh, gender dysphoria. Most transgender people don't have gender dysphoria, but they have to basically title it with something so that they can get it, uh, so they can get it passed in, in insurance and in, in government. So let's start there, first of all. Uh, gender dysphoria is a horrible, horrible mental illness. It's akin to anorexia, which is basically looking in the mirror and, you know, a 90-pound woman seeing a, you know, 400-pound woman um, and that kind of disconnect. So uh, when you actually prescribe an anorexic, <clears throat> basically, to stand in front of the mirror and say that you're fat and ugly 100 times a day, and then follow it up with the benefits of starving uh, or starvation on the body, you're not going to have a good end to it. So first of all, let's get that clear. Uh, people that do have true gender dysphoria, it is a true mental illness. It's horrid. They don't do well because once you start to medically transition, that kind of mental illness is in the back of your head, and then it's on the forefront of, of everything that you do. You know, did that person think that I was uh, a man or a woman? Did that person, did my voice sound okay, this or that? So, you know, let's start there first. Um, I had what most people that medically transition have, uh, which is basically not feeling comfortable in the, uh, in the gender that they're in, maybe the stereotypical kind of things um, that, that tell us, you know, this is how boys act and, and, and this is how girls act. So for me, that was, um, that was probably my, my whole life from, from that standpoint. If you kind of took me uh, as a, you know, being born a girl and kind of interjected uh, me being born as a boy, if you go back in that time, um, you, it wouldn't be hard for you to come back uh, to the realization that the, all the hardships that I had with, you know, being aggressive, being strong, being um, an alpha female, being uh, an athlete, being, um, you know, very vocal, all those things that, that we actually attribute to, uh, you know, males on, on a high scale, I was. But unfortunately, you know, being a woman on those scales, it's kind of here. It's kind of, you know, redirecting like girls don't do that uh, kind of stuff. So for me, that's uh, how it was my whole life. But I had gotten to the point where I was, you know, enjoying who I was, kind of embracing who I was. But in the back of my mind um, were all those times in my life, you know, where, uh, you know, un unknowing to, to them, like my sister used to tell me, you'd be the perfect husband, you know. Uh, that kind of stuff. Or I was in a relationship, I was married to a woman who really despised being a lesbian. She kind of soothed herself with the idea that, um, you know, I was a, a man born in, in a woman's body. But for me, I, I didn't look like a man. I had a strong personality. I come from a very feminine family. Um, you know, so I was in business sales. I, you know, did not look like a lesbian. After you got to know me in a while with my strong personality, you kind of might go, I wonder if that's a lesbian, but it wasn't on the forefront. Um, but at a, at a very, very vulnerable time in my life, when uh, Jazz Jennings started to get popular, when, um, you know, Bruce Jenner, all that kind of stuff, watching that and, and hearing the whole talk tracks, right, which are, um, you know, born in the wrong body. And at a vulnerable place, um, I, I was married to a woman who, who, whose family didn't know that she was in a relationship uh, with me, just very, very religious. And uh, me being a man would have absolutely just fixed everything. 
And uh, so just kind of one casual, God, well, I, I, I wonder if I was born uh, in the wrong body. And that was just like, <clears throat> you know, and next week I was in, a, in a, uh, an office with a therapist, with a trans woman therapist asking me, how long have you been dressing like a man? Now, once again, you wouldn't think that I was a man. I was, you know, had my business clothes on, earrings, lipstick and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a, a downward spiral from there. And that, that one sentence that that transgender therapist said to me has changed the complete trajectory of my life. Because think of it this way, you know, thinking of yourself in a very vulnerable situation, uh, thinking that your whole life, that, that who you are, what you represent would absolutely, absolutely be the epitome of what every male wants in a son. Uh, you know what I mean? And then uh, being a woman, having to deal with the fact that everything that would make you awesome as a son is something that you need to suppress as a woman. So there's the problem right there. But um, when she said that to me, it was all that stuff in the back of my mind. And even though I was 42, even though I'm not an unintelligent person, that one sentence, when she said that, it was like almost like a minute of, I guess I, uh, all my life. And, you know, from that point, from that uh, point, it's, it's a couple of weeks I had of, um, sorry, I had, um, you know, kind of a, a horrible couple of weeks after that, because in my mind, I started to, to do all these different things, all these different eras in my life and different things that have happened. And I started to, to just kind of think, well, wow, I, everybody else has known this my entire life. Like I've walked by people my entire life. And, you know, as I walk by, they go, yeah, that's a man. I'm doing that, whatever. And it was embarrassing to then kind of like, wow, well, maybe this will, you know, make me fit like we all want to. Maybe this is, uh, this is the problem. And then, you know, the next week I was in with a gynecologist uh, who, you know, at that time they weren't paying for it uh, insurance wise or anything. Uh, he knew that I could write a check for it. And he said something to me like, hey, have you ever been tested for intersex? You've got a really strong jaw kind of a thing. And, you know, I blabbed on to that really quick. And I thought, well, this is the fix. And it was at that point and where these kids are at, where um, they're living with the idea that, hey, this is, this is going to fix them. You know, the, the honest truth is that um, medical transition is no different than any other cosmetic surgery. You know, we deserve respect and dignity if we choose to do so. Um, but it does not align with homosexuality. Homosexuality, you know, we've studied, it is ingrained in who you are. It doesn't mean that you can't choose not to, uh, but it is who you are. Um, you know, transgenderism is everything uh, that homosexuality isn't is, which is transgenderism is a choice. Um, it's something that you create with synthetic hormones and surgery. It doesn't fix anything. And when people go into this thinking that it will, it destroys people, their emotional side. And it's the reason why um, no study is ever held up about the benefits of, of medical transition for children or anybody. Um, there's only one long-term study that has, and, and that found that, you know, suicidal ideation gets worse after you medically transition, you know, seven to 10 years because it's, it's a long process.
Does that cover it for you? Yeah, there's a couple of things there that I, I wanted to ask. One of one of uh, of which is is you mentioned the the sort of the, the Caitlin Bruce Jenner Jazz Jennings thing, mm-hmm. and it's interesting because mm-hmm. I've heard different people make different cases. Some people said it was tremendously historically significant. Others are like, you know, this is sort of Hollywood and the press being Hollywood and the press. What would you say the cultural mm-hmm. significance of those two figures were? Well, I think they were. Um, well, I think they've catapulted this into an epidemic. Honestly, mm. um, and it's it's targeting people in our, our society that are, are, are the most vulnerable. Right. Um, so there are people that don't feel like they fit in and everybody at some point in their life doesn't feel like they fit in. But when you truly don't fit in, um, it's, it's a heavy burden. So, you know, the high percentage of these people uh, that believe that they are medically transitioned. Now, keep in mind, they don't fit in. Um, they're told at a very, very young age at 11 or 12 years old or whatever that, Hey, you know what? This is not your fault. This, this is a medical thing and, and we're going to get it fixed. Um, and so they, they kind of jump on to that and then, uh, they think that it's going to help them. And then they get to the end of it and realize that they were just sold a whole bunch of unicorn farts. Um, and then they get, you know, hold of, you know, religious and feminist people telling them that they need to trans that'll fix. And then we've got girls that have been on testosterone for five years. You know, and once that spotlight falls, then they go down. I mean, we're lying, we're selling these kids uh, under the bus one after another, you know, back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Um, but to answer your question, it's, it's very, very significant. It's very significant because the whole rise of transgenderism, if you look at it from a, a strategic, from a marketing, from a PR standpoint, what they have done is they have lifted this and kind of placed it on the idea that it's about homosexual rights at a place in our life where, you know, we had been fighting for homosexual rights for hundreds of years. Finally, people got it that, hey, you know what? Um, We're not after kids. We're not a recruiting agency. We just want to be able to be in the hospital when our partner of 50 years is, you know, passed away, not being kicked out. But we want that kind of stuff. Um, And then, you know, after we got that, all the right, I call them all the righteous gays and lesbians kind of dropped out because there was no, uh, we we got what we needed. And then, uh, you know, the donations stopped. Like Stonewall in the UK, they were filing bankruptcy in 2015. The next year, they had a 32% year over year. What did they do? They signed on with mermaids, you know, to to medically transition. So now um, we have a new, we have a new civil rights thing. Um, that we can basically, we've, we've had that groove, we've built that groove, that tunnel uh, with homosexuality. People are conditioned to the talk tracks that they're using, but unfortunately, transgenderism and homosexuality are completely two separate things. Homosexuality is something you are, transgenderism is something that you create. When you create it with the idea that it fixes things, it doesn't end well. And uh, I think we're seeing that with the violence, with the pushback, you know, that, that these people are not mentally well. And I'm not saying that I'm, you know, the, the sharpest mentally person. I mean, I'm probably a couple sandwiches short myself. I thought I was born in the, in the wrong body, but I'm not sociopathic and narcissist. So we have those kind of people that have been getting away with, um, you know, trans women are real women, um, trans right or human, all those talk tracks that everybody has been pushing and society is, is grabbing onto uh, because they've been conditioned to it, are finally starting to go with people like me that are standing up going, wait a sec, you need to push back. And then there's a pushback. And then it, it, it it's very telling that at this point, they're not going to places where they want to debate. They're not going, you know, on television trying to trying to basically talk their their way out of it because unicorn parts don't work anymore. So what do they do? They turn into narcissistic, sociopathic, 
um, adults, uh, males, most of them. Um, and then what do they do? They go straight to violence. It's why we're seeing the Posey Parker. It's why we're mm. seeing the shooters. It's why we're seeing Billboard Chris. It's because we're pushing back on the toddlers. So uh, it's going to get a lot worse. Very interesting the way the way that you framed uh, the sort of rise of okay the 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 gay rights movement. It kind of came to a logical conclusion in many ways. And then mm-hmm. you've got the when when you talked about the ones that went away. What's very interesting to me is some of the the prominent voices opposing gender ideology are are guys like Andrew Sullivan, who probably he's a gay rights activist who I think probably contributed to the idea um, uh, with virtually normal. Um, uh, of gay rights more than any other living American, uh, hands down. You've got others like Barry Weiss, and I've always kind of thought that a lot of a lot of them, because they were used to for so many years being countercultural dissidents, they're still more comfortable mm-hmm. opposing the cultural mainstream than most people. Yeah. Why do you think? I'm interested in some of the things that you've said and some of the things you just mentioned here about the way this has turned into an industry. Because when I look at somebody like Andrew Sullivan, who I, I disagreed with, but I saw some, he nobody can doubt that he's a luminous writer, phenomenal debater, very interesting guy. The extent to which guys like him got chucked straight into the trash so quickly after he declined to get on board with gender ideology was kind of stunning to me. What are some of the forces that were really pulling it into what became a mainstream movement? And it feels like half a decade. Well, we're talking about a, you're talking about something that that has a, a huge amount of puzzle pieces that that needs to be fit together. So let me try to fit those together uh, a little bit from from the angle that I'm at, which you know I've been doing this for five years. Um, you know I've studied it inside and out the the studies and and whatnot, and you know my career in business sales has kind of taken me to the place where I can help people understand um, you know different concepts and and whatnot. So we had just ended the uh, the homosexual rights, right? Uh, we had gotten everything that we wanted at that point. Now, um, what I haven't and didn't understand about activism until the last like year, which is funny, is that it's a business. I didn't realize that. Um, and it's been a business since the beginning of time. But there has been a change in the business model. That business model change has been forced on us with uh, social media. Now, social media are are publicly or to privately own entities. So they can do whatever the hell they want to do. They can suppress whatever the hell they want to suppress. Uh, they can raise whatever they want to raise. Um, and, you know, if somebody wants to pay them money, it's not illegal for them to kind of push down, uh, you know, certain talk tracks. So think of it that way. We've got, you know, homosexuality that we've conditioned uh, people into the idea that we weren't after kids. Uh, by the way, the LGBTQ is now after kids. They're a recruiting agency. Um, that we weren't before, um, but we need, they needed a new revenue, revenue stream, right? They had a talk track that was already available. They had social media and a society, uh, that just reads headlines. We have a media that suppresses things. Now, listen to me when I say this, I used to get into arguments with my wife about not watching uh, the news, not knowing what's going on. And I used to tell her that if I'm watching the news, it's going to be because I'm in it. And because I'm not going to watch it and listen to have everybody else tell me what's going on, because we all know that that's tainted. You know, it's tainted to the point where society is not getting the truth out. Uh, social media is so powerful uh, that it's stopping there. We have a new business model with new news organizations, and it's the reason why people drive me crazy and they do what I call lazy activism with left and right, woke and unwoke. It's a great business model. It raises all these social media stars. It makes a few people very, very rich. It's got a cult mentality to it, which is, you know, they're the bad people. 
you're hurt, you're in harm's way, don't talk to them, just come to me. And these are ev- this is everything that you have to believe in for me to circle around you and protect you. Uh, even if you don't agree with everything that I believe, shut your f- mouth uh, if you want to stay in here. So we have social media that kind of suppress this. We have a new business model uh, with news organizations on both sides, right or left. We have social media stars that are more, uh, more concentrated on getting followers and getting monetization. You know, I mean, I've been kicked off of Twitter six times. I could have had probably half a million followers by now. I have 24,000. I don't stop the way I'm talking. I know how to not get kicked off of Twitter. I don't change the way I'm talking because I know it's coming for these kids. And this is not about monetization for me. And there's very few of those type of people out there. So we've got homosexuality, right? We have all those talk tracks, all that history uh, with homosexuality. People have finally gotten all the studies. Conversion therapy doesn't work. It doesn't mean that somebody can't go to therapy and decide, hey, I'm not going to go down that road. I'm going to try to do this you know, and be honest about it. But who you are essentially attracted to does not change. And then we've got transgenderism, which is a total choice. Um, it is a total process. It is a cash cow. Um, and so this has, is beginning to be basically the new thing. So when you're talking about the gay people like that, it's the reason why, you know, Gays Against Groomers has come out in the last six months. It's the reason why uh, people are starting to push back because we're starting to figure out what's going on because nobody knows what's happening. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a complete analogy of why we're at the place that we're at. In Missouri, Missouri uh, was running a bill for banning the medicalization of children. Follow me here. So I've been helping uh, Senator Moon for about two years on this bill. I like him a lot. Uh, he's a total evangelical, um, very, very religious, You know, has an idea of what is right and what is not right. Um, and I don't agree with him on, su- or on the ways that he brought that bill, but I just love the dude, sincerely. He's very sincere, not very many politicians are. So I've kind of gone on this road with him. And so we got to the point uh, where we got to the bill. And um, when we were in the testimony, he started uh, talking about why he was pro this bill. And he used words that were like, um, you know, trigger words for, for gays and lesbians, you know, evildoers. And, you know, he used God and all that kind of stuff. And so not that that's not okay for him to do, but what it did was it opened up an, a complete talk track to attack him, right? And then we had the, the gay senator um, that after that, you know, just read him a riot act about being a bigot about, you know, if he wasn't able to be in a relationship with a man, he probably would have killed himself. And uh, I got kicked out of that testimony because I said something like, you know, this is not about who you like to have sex with, dude. Um, but at the end of that, they had a press conference and he was going to do a press conference in the way that I think is the total wrong way, which is to have a detransitioner here and a detransitioner here, have an evangelical here. Because all people here is I used to be gay. I used to be gay. God cured me. Boom. And then everybody that needs to hear it, their, their ears shut off. Uh, and, and he's only talking to the people that already agree with him. And I told him that in a very, 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 very loving way. In fact, we were in a meeting and I, you know, I said to his, his head guy, I said, listen, I love you guys. But the way that you're running this bill is like you have a PhD on how to f*** it up and not get it passed. I mean, you guys have a PhD in this, truly. Um, so I'm not going to do this. Uh, but when this goes south, you got the you know main whistleblower in St. Louis, a huge gift. When you don't get this passed, 
call me. Um, and they kind of laughed and went, oh, yeah, we're going to get it. We're going to get it to go through. Well, it didn't go through. And so the week before they were getting ready to, to, to you know, basically vote on that, I got a call. And um, I got a call by Judy Grace, who's an evangelical who, who does that in, in Missouri. And I love her to death. She took the chance. I said, Judy, will you help me do it the way I think that it needs to be done, please? And she said, yes. So we unlocked the gays, the gays against groomers. We unlocked the libertarians, the Democrats. But we got, um, you know, evangelical organization. We've got gays against groomers. We've got Trey Voices, which is a trans organization. We had two transgender women, uh, two transgender men, me, um, gay people. We had uh, people uh, that were speaking that were evangelicals that talked about abortion. I mean, it was all these different topics and these different opinions in one rally. And after everybody got off, you know, speaking, they high five. You know, somebody that's you know anti-abortion uh, or homosexuality or whatever's high fiving the gay guys as he's going up. Um, and we're coming together because when you do that, that is when people are able to hear the truth. When you basically show them that we are all here, we're all circled around, so you cannot call us a bigot. Now, uh, let's talk about facts. And when you do that for 10 minutes, nobody walks away. So after that rally, we went from not getting this bill to be passed to um, at the end of it, they were getting ready to vote on it. These senators that took uh, this bill on went from, I don't think that this is going to pass, to we're not leaving the room until this passes. They can filibuster for two days. We don't care. We're not leaving. We're not taking off puberty blockers. We're not taking off. And I, I say that it has to do with the idea that you know nobody wants kids to, to kill themselves, right? It's wrong what they're saying, the better uh, an alive daughter than a dead son. But nobody at the end of it, I don't care what you believe, uh, wants any child to kill themselves. And so it's almost like that had that little 5%, you know, like, I don't know if I'm right. That rally completely changed uh, their, um, their conviction. They were convicted before, but now it was almost like gays and lesbians and libertarians and the, you know, Democrats and everybody came together and they went, okay, uh, this is, we're not hurting kids. We're, we're actually saving kids. And they did, they passed that. But in the news article, this is what I'm getting to. So in the news article, um, the, the headlines read this. Now think of yourself not knowing anything about this, right? Think of this as, you know, you're 45 years old. You've heard all the, you know, the gay stories. You're not gay yourself, but you've heard all that. You've heard all that turmoil and all that hurt and all that hate and all that bigotry and all that true um, human rights that we're fighting for. You know, we were on the right side of that. And you open up your newspaper and you read an article that says uh, anti-trans hateful uh, organization holds a rally at the Capitol in Missouri regarding the banning children. So we're only headline readers, right? Um, so that's what you read. So you tell me what you would hear with that. What do you hear with that? Yeah, you basically hear that it's a throwback to the 80s. Right. Now, the truth is, since you know the backstory of it, the truth is, is a, a truthful headline would be an, uh, go ahead and say it, an anti-trans uh, evangelical organization, teams with transgender organization, gays against groomers, libertarians, Democrats, and more to talk about why they are against the medicalization of children. Now, what emotion do you get from one to the other? So, so this, is, this is what's happening on a huge scale, right? So these people that are fighting for this don't understand 
that they're fighting for something that is going to make these kids more suicidal uh, seven to 10 years after. They don't understand that these kids are going to have 10 to 15 years of life taken from them, you know, because cross-sex hormones are very, very powerful. They don't know that puberty blockers now have been banned in, in uh, you know, Sweden's the leading country for the medicalization of people. Absolutely banned puberty blockers for children because spines aren't fusing together properly. They won't probably live till they're past 30. You know, they don't know that, you know, these kids are now 19 and 20 and have hearts and lungs the size of, you know, 10, 11 year olds never to grow fully. Uh, they don't know that, uh, you know, cross-sex hormones, puberty, it induces psychosis by 12%. It increases mental health uh, to make it worse. Uh, you know, we're talking about heart and lung, heart attacks. We're talking about uh, blood issues. We're talking about sterility. We're talking about very, 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 very serious things. And these bottom surgeries where these kids have colostomy bags, have, um, you know, bacteria infections for life that are life-threatening. Nobody's listening to the truth and people are listening to those headlines. Um, the social media stars, shame on them on both sides, shame on the media stars because they have a business model. It's about business. They're making a ton of money. Um, and so, that's where we're at. The pushback that you see, the violence that you see, just have the toddler that's three years old image in your mind. You're at Walmart. You know, you've given that your child candy every time that you've gone to Walmart, but you know, you realize that candy isn't good for him. You say no, that toddler's going to throw a fit. Now, I want you to think of uh, narcissistic sociopathic men um, who have uh, uh, sexual, uh, there's you know, fetishes that, that a lot of trans women have, which is, you know, they can, they're only sexually aroused by people thinking that they're women. Yeah. If society knew that basically they were um, fighting for uh, men's erections, I think that they would, uh, they would be shocked, but that's actually what it is. It's, it's a fetish for a lot of uh, transgender women. So think of, think of a, you know, 45 year old man that has a sexual fetish that um, has narcissistic sociopathic tendencies um, that you're pushing back on, on their erection. Um, and no longer do, um, you know, transgender women and, uh, you know, trans rights, and people are starting to push back. Well, what's a three-year-old going to do? They're going to throw a fit. So what we're seeing is we're seeing adult narcissistic sociopathic um, fetish people pushing back. And we have society that's sitting in the back and doesn't realize how dumb they are by listening to the media. So there's a, there's a, a couple of questions I have out of that. One of them on, on the media. So you've explained that the business model thing, I think that's an extremely effective way of understanding it, especially from the activist model. But what I find really interesting about the, the American press versus say the European press is that the European press has been like, you know, the guardian, the BBC, you know, despite how progressive these institutions are, they have been quite honestly reporting on a lot of the issues with the, the, the affirmation model and stuff like that for quite a few years now, whereas the New York times broke rank, what last year for the first time and started questioning a few of these things. And I remember writing about this, the month where we switched from like sex change surgery to gender affirmation. Like I remember the terminology changing and I just assumed they got a press release from the human rights campaign or something like that telling them because they all change on a dime like the LA Times the New York Times like overnight everybody changed their language so what was it about the American press that got sucked so far into running cover for these people where you have left-wing publications like the Guardian as pro-trans as they are are still at least willing to cover scandals at Tavistock and things like that 
Well, that's a good question. Um, and you're absolutely right on that. And I can only give you my opinion, which is, you know, right. But, you know, think it's wrong if you want to. Um, here in the United States, we are, um, healthcare is a business for us. Um, there, there's a profit model for, for us, uh, for a whole bunch of people. It doesn't mean, you know, that we make Lupron, we, we send it over to the UK. It's not like, you know, the people at Lupron making puberty blockers are like, oh yeah, this is the UK, that's free. They're, so, I mean, they have to pay for it too. Um, but the, the, the money underneath it is not as big as it is here in the United States. And I'll give you an example. Um, in, in Texas, this goes so deep, I don't think people understand this, but in Texas in 2015, Governor Abbott, who is an evangelical, um, you know, Republican against homosexual uh, marriage, all that kind of stuff, which is fine. I'm totally okay with that. We, we need to disagree to, to disagree, but people are, are not intrinsically evil for not agreeing with stuff. So that's totally okay with me. Um, but in 2015, um, the Abbott campaign started taking money from a gender clinic, a Southwestern gender clinic. It was siphoned through the UT Medical Center in a total of $2.5 million from a gender clinic. Now, Texas has a tort reform act, which means that uh, medical malpractice against um, experimental procedures are kind of hard to do. You know, you bring in a procedure up and the, the judge goes, oh, okay, yeah, uh, this is, uh, okay, uh, yeah, bottom surgery. Um, where's the baseline for care? And then the attorney goes, uh, here's WPATH, which is supposed to be baseline for care. And the judge goes, <laughs> seriously, where's the baseline for care? Because that's not even worth the money it's written off. Never held up in court anywhere. Uh, okay, so it's experimental. Um, okay, so here's what I want you to do, lawyers. I want you to go back, spend about $10 million to make this not an experimental procedure. So we have a baseline to compare to, to see if there was any wrong done. Uh, when that happens, come back and see me. So they have to spend about $10 million on cases that are maybe worth $1 or $2 million. On top of, they have to fight unicorn farts and glitter bombs. So any business that they had before that's gone because the media is going to cover them as, as hateful people, right? Um, so Texas is the worldwide hub for the medicalization of, of people and children, by the way. Um, so in 2015, there were 22 children in Texas that, had, um, that were on puberty blockers or gender dysphoria. Now... Puberty blockers is an X-factor drug, which means that it is a, um, it's a potent, powerful warning drug. There's lots of, of side effects and risks. Because of that, uh, it's more expensive than other, um, other medications. On top of it, um, it's eight times more profitable when you prescribe it to children than adults. So adults is maybe like $4,400 a year. Uh, if you put a child on it, you know, it's, it's about $50,000 a year. So that's pretty, there's a significant uh, you know, model from prescribing to children uh, to adults. So uh, those 22 kids over a four-year span, because usually they, they have them on for about four years with, with gender disorder, it's about a profit that generates about $4.4 million, which is, you know, nothing to sneeze at, right? It, that, that's a pretty big model. Now, if we jump to 2017, that model uh, of those children medically transition, you know, after Abbott started taking that money, uh, increased 4,000, over 4,000% of the children that were on puberty blockers in Texas. Now, that $4,000, or excuse me, that uh, $4.6 million over a four-year spread, with the 4,000% increase uh, in just two years after taking the $2.5 million from Gender Clinic, uh, totals a little over $90 million. 
Now that's got to tell you something right there, number one. And then let's go a little bit deeper with that because we have the governor who is an evangelical against uh, homosexual rights taking money from a uh, gender clinic, which is transgenderism, that which is locked in with the LGBTQ, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so last year we had a bill on the floor in Texas that would have banned the medicalization of children totally and completely. Now, um, four days before there was a vote on that bill, Governor Abbott and his team took a $250,000 check and proceeded to uh, basically strategically move this bill off with, you know, basically speeches about we need to accept people and rights and all that kind of stuff. Now, that was thrown off. And it wasn't in the news, right? It wasn't in the news that it was thrown off, all that kind of stuff. So four months later, Governor Abbott, sits in front of a a press conference and says that he's done some kind of studies and realized that the medicalization of children is child abuse. He has, you know, all these articles saying that he stopped the medicalization of children uh, in Texas. The truth is, is that he did absolutely nothing, didn't stop anyone from medically transitioning, stopped nobody from medically transitioning. And in fact, last week, week and a half, when we had a bill uh, run through, well, guess what? The surgeries were uh, banned in Texas, but not puberty blockers and not cross-sex hormones. That was taken off the bill. Now, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones are the money within this. They also are, if you get a child on puberty blockers, you get a child on um, cross-sex hormones, the odds of them uh, fully medically transitioning, we're sitting at like 97%. So once again, Texas is coming out of this with the idea that they're doing something for kids. The truth is, is that we have a total and complete horrid human being running Texas and people have no idea. Now he's evangelical. So he's got all these people standing behind him that he's, you know, this, you know, righteous moral person. No, he's not. $90 million worth of money compared to $4 million. Now you tell me why. We're doing this in the United States. You tell me why we're changing the headlines. You tell me why we're not doing anything to stop these children. We're not doing anything because these children don't matter. These children are all the children that are different in our society. All the people that get cast aside, all the people that get laughed at, all the people that have a hard time in life, all the people that don't matter. It's all the people that are in the shadows that don't make up anything of what we think is important in our society. It's the same sex attracted. It's the autistic people that are a little bit awkward. It is the people that are mentally gifted. It is the people that are mentally ill. It's the people that have been sexually, you know, molested or hurt or abused. It's all the people that society does not care about. And so for that reason, this is getting pushed further. Now, if you have one of those kids, you know that those kids are not different in a bad way. It's a superpower, but we don't think it is. This would never have happened if it was Susie Cheerleader or Tony Quarterback. I guarantee you that. Now, one of the key questions anybody will ask you, um, because you just mentioned the extent to which neurodiversity is kind of being attacked through these these puberty blockers and, and cross-sex hormones, et cetera. But the lie, which you mentioned very briefly earlier on in our conversation, which is that, you know, it's better to have a live daughter than a dead son or vice versa. Easily the most 
potent lie that's told by the transgender movement because it exploits our empathy and it makes people mm-hmm. choose things that they 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 they're, they think they're doing it for all the right reasons. And I'm yep. sure you've talked to uh, a thousand times more than I have, but I've talked to a lot of parents of, of kids who identify as transgender, and a decent chunk of them did it because they believed that thing. That as much as this, this tears them apart, as much as, as one described it to me, uh, it's like watching my kid disintegrate before my eyes. And that's not actually a terrible description, considering what's being done. The idea of them hanging themselves was worse. How do you respond to that? Because I know you've been responding to this all the way across the country. Well, sure. Um, let's let's take it apart for what it is. Let, let's not do headlines. Let, let's take that apart. So um, a better and alive daughter than a dead son. First of all, I don't know of any parent that would be sitting in a therapist's office with a child that is, you know, not doing well mentally. And the therapist with all the, you know, different awards behind him uh, says that, you know, you, you got to medically transition or they're going to kill themselves. I mean, how many parents go, yep. Uh, thank you for your time. Send me your check. We're going to go get a coffin for junior. Cause um, we're, 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 we're taking death. We're, we're taking suicide. So first of all, that's a, an emotional hostage. On the side of what I think is criminal, I do think people are going to start to go to jail for this um, because that is holding parents emotionally hostage, right? Then we have children and all the activists that are that are holding hostage. And then we have all of society that doesn't know what's happening. So these these poor parents are held hostage. Um, and from, from every angle, it's, you know, if they don't medically transition, it's hate. It's hate. People have no clue what they're talking about. So let's tear that apart, okay? Um, so here's the truth. There's only seven studies that says that uh, medically transitioning children is uh, beneficial for them emotionally. Every single one of those studies has either been retracted with, oops, we're sorry, it doesn't help anything, or modified to not enough time or not enough participants to uh, come out and, and say whether it's positive or negative. The last one that was retracted basically was a very small um, study. And in the study, uh, there were two children who committed suicide while they were being medically transitioned, which was covered up. Of course, society doesn't know that either. So let, let's take it Let's take it from a, a storyline so people can understand. When, when you um, basically start to think that, hey, you know what, maybe I was born in the wrong body. First of all, all the times that you didn't fit in, those, those memories get changed you know, to fitting in, right? Um, and that's very, very powerful, well, whether it's 11 years old or, or whether you're 42 years old. It's a very, very powerful feeling. Um, so these children start start to believe that, right? Um, they go to people that they're supposed to uh, trust, you know, the therapist. They're online. And they're seeing what I call all the unicorn farts and the glitter bombs. They're not seeing the truth. Social media can, you know, suppress the truth. And the reason why this transgender thing has gone in a whirlwind in the last, like, two months it's because Elon Musk is not kicking people off anymore. People are starting to hear the truth, by the way. Um, so these, these children grab onto this, right? The idea that, you know, I don't fit, but I'm going to kind of thing. Um, if they're same-sex attracted, well, I'm going to be straight if I medically transition. I'm not going to have to worry about that. Uh, you know, the autistic people, the, especially the autistic girls that, you know, think that they're not feminine enough. Well, you know, I'm going to be a boy, so I can be masculine, and I don't have to deal with that. So all those, all those things in your mind kind of get switched off to, you know, this is going to be fixed. And you grab onto that, right? Um, and then you you start to basically sell it with the idea that, you know, I was born in the wrong body. You start talking to people about it. Then you start to grab onto that with the idea that you're going to feel better when you start hormone therapy. And then these these kids start hormone therapy. And, and girls in particular, 
um, having gone through female puberty and, you know, synthetic male puberty or whatever, completely in total difference. You know, men or boys go through um, puberty. It starts maybe 11 and it lasts till they're 25. It's the reason why they can still grow. It's a long process of little, you know, little bits of testosterone. On top of testosterone is an anti-anxiety kind of mood lifter. People don't realize that. Um, estrogen is a holy hell, hold on. Ah! It's, it's, it's a hard drug to deal with. And I think that we need to actually help girls understand that and have way more uh, compassion for girls through puberty going through this. So we have girls that their puberty is, you know, a couple of years compared to boys. So we have estrogen that does what's called a blocking. Estrogen is a blocker. It shuts the, the bone plates. So girls don't get, get taller. Um, it shuts the, the hair follicles. It, it shuts off uh, the vocal cords from getting scratched to get deeper. Um, you know, so it shuts the, the hearts and lungs and all that kind of stuff. It suppresses stuff. It suppresses the hair growth, suppresses all these things. Um, but it's a, it's a short term, right? And so these children, uh, you know, get estrogen, which is, you know, a, it's, it's an anxiety-driven uh, hormone. First, it is. It gives people anxiety on too much you know, find one person that has terrible anxiety with low estrogen. You won't find it. Find people with high estrogen that have anxiety. Yeah, no duh, kind of a thing. So we have these girls that don't fit in, um, that are going through puberty, that it is horrid to go through. Um, we have a society that doesn't understand how bad puberty is for girls. We don't have a society that understands the absolute just, just pull of what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to look like, how they're supposed to be, sexual objects, all this kind of stuff. They're kids. They don't. How is how are these? You know, how are they putting this in, into place? So we've got all these pressures on girls. On top of we've got a hyper puberty uh, that boys don't get. On top of they have a hormone that induces anxiety, depression. Um, while males have a hormone that suppresses anxiety and depression. Um, and then they, they're, they're sold that, hey, you know what? I was born in the wrong body. So then they start on puberty blockers, which, you know, stops the estrogen. So what happens? You know, estrogen is, is anxiety, kind of depression. So that's going to make them feel a little bit better, right? Um, and then they're going to start to take testosterone, which is, you know, it suppresses anxiety and depression. They're going to feel a little bit better. So then they're going to grab onto it even more. So these studies that they have out are very, very short-term studies for a reason. Um, this, is, this is the sinister part. This is the part where I think people are going to go to prison because all of these studies, all of these things know this and they, they do that within a time frame. None of them are like over four years or so. And they do it at the Christmas party phase, right? They do it when they're interchanging the different hormones, when everybody's, you know, oh my, you're so brave, high five, all this kind of stuff. Um, and they start that. And then after that process goes through and all of that calms down, you know, go, and I've done it. I went, been through it too. Like, okay, well, that didn't help. I guess I don't have a little anxiety, but I'm, I, still, I still don't feel great yet. Uh, but... I still have to get surgery. I, I have to get top surgery. You know, so, so when I get top surgery, I'll, I'll feel better. I'll, I'll feel better after that. And then you get top surgery. And then you don't want to let this go, right? Because this is a huge thing that you've taken on. How embarrassing is it? I don't think people realize how embarrassing is it for me to stand in front of people and say, I was a total idiot. Don't let your kids be an idiot kind of thing. That's why a lot of people don't come out. It's hard to do. Um, and then you go, I'll feel better when I get top surgery. Get that, you don't feel better. Uh, well, you know what? When people stop mispronouncing. When people stop being bigots, uh, you know what? I'll feel better then. And then you start to pass when people use the right pronouns. And you go, you know what? I, I still need to get my name changed. I still need to get bottom surgery. Long, long story short, uh, it's about a seven to 10 year process.
So the only long-term study that was done in, in Sweden uh, followed 324 transgender people. So that's an enormous amount compared to these tiny little studies that are being retracted, number one. Uh, number two, it followed them from 1973 to 2003. Uh, so a 30-year process. And what they found was uh, exactly what's happening with these small studies uh, that are being retracted and modified, which is when you start medical transition, it's a Christmas party phase and you feel better. And that's what this study found too. But as you follow it further and further and further along, and, and it's kind of at the place where you, where you finish the medicalization and you kind of look left and right and go, did that fix anything? And you realize it didn't fix a thing. And so you realize that you were totally gullible to this idea that this was going to fix you, um, that you were an idiot, all these things that you, I mean, you had to convince your whole family about this, all, you know, deal with all of that, all that kind of stuff. And now you're at the process where you're like, eh, it's fixing me. Um, and so it's at that point, which is seven to 10 years, that the highest point of suicidal ideation starts. That's when these children that were medically transitioning that are suicidal, uh, have suicidal ideation, that level of suicidal ideation does not peak. This is their suicidal ideation. They start on medical transition. It kind of goes like this. And then as the time goes by, seven to 10 years, it goes this. So we're taking these children, telling them that they were born in the wrong body. We are ruining their health. We're, uh, you know, can't have babies. These girls that would have grown up just to be straight, now they have to be in gay relationships. They're on heart uh, and lung medicine. Um, they're sterile. They're Now they really don't fit in society. I mean, their dating pool's been slashed by 95%. They don't fit. They're always in the back of their mind is the whole trans, trans, trans thing. And they realize that they've done this. Now, it's at this point that these children will be the highest uh, suicidal. Now, with that said, I've done this for five years, and I've said this that we're starting to get into a suicide epidemic. It's one of the reasons why the news is following it, because they're starting to see that these kids are starting to kill themselves. I used to spend maybe once every three months trying to find a mental health facility for these young kids. This is almost like a five or six times a week for me to do. These children are not doing well. Um, these children are starting to kill themselves. I do a speech, and at the end of the speech, I always say a suicide uh, note that I read, which was, mom, I was just a gay boy. Now I can't have kids. Uh, now nobody will date me. Now I have early onset osteoporosis. Now I really don't fit in. And now I killed myself. And she found that note on a coffee table that was broke. He shot himself in the head. Now that's the truth. That's the truth. Whether you want to hear it or not, that is the truth. I was going to ask you because I remember watching a clip from Jazz Jennings a couple of years ago already where the doctor was describing the various physical things that had happened through the drugs, what it had, you know, was happening to to the genitalia, et cetera. And I wondered then, and I still wonder, and I was going to ask you this, what do you say to young people when they realize at you know, 18 or 19 or even younger that they'll never be able to have kids and that they'll never be able to experience sexual pleasure. And that decision was made essentially for them before they were old enough to vote, drink, smoke, or drive. Like, I don't know if we have any way of describing the despair and agony that would accompany those twin realizations that two of the things that 
that people look forward to the most are two things that we are being placed out of reach for kids who are now seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. Well, um, let, let, let's look at the, the the kids that are being medically transitioned. Right? They're they're all the children that that don't belong. Right. Um, and so when there's a couple of things um, that I like to help people understand from the vigil uh, point of view, where these kids are at. They're at 11 or 12 years old. They don't fit in. They're, they're told that they will by uh, medical professionals. Um, and they start this process. And then they realize that 18 or 19, it, it, it didn't help. Um, and so they realize that, you know, not only were they different, they didn't matter. And so then they are lost again. And they go on social media and they get, you know, they get scooped up by uh you know the the evangelicals or the you know or the feminists or whatever and they're put on this platform not because uh out of the benefit for them uh these children that are are that don't belong you know they get put on this platform and get and get pointed to see i told you i was right not really caring about this person that they're dealing with um and basically they have especially girls you know, that are 19, 20 years old that have taken testosterone for five or six years will never look like a woman, will never look like a man. Um, but everybody's, you know, giving them love bombs with you're so brave, you're so this, and, you know, doing over the, the female pronouns, you know, just to kind of make a point. And all these newspapers are after them because it's, you know, it's easy uh, news journalism. I mean, activism and journalism, we're all lazy. And so we have these children that, you know, are like, okay, now I matter, now I matter. Well, after that story gets, you know, falls through, because you can only hear a story so many times. And when the lights turn off, then they realize they were sold out twice. Twice. First uh, for money, and second from a political standpoint. So the first thing that I would say is that uh, bravo to organizations like Genspec. Uh, Genspec is, is run by Stella O'Malley which is a therapist in Ireland. She has a whole bunch of different therapists. They don't push uh, gender ideology. They're, they basically do therapy, and they started a program called Beyond, um, Beyond uh, D-Trans. And basically talking to these kids and helping them decide where they need to go in their life. Uh, so at 20 years old, they can process the idea, especially these girls can process the idea that, you know what, I'm, I'm never going to look like a woman. Um, I'm going to have to go for all these surgeries, what do I do? What's best for me? You know, do I just not take anything and just kind of look half man and half woman for the rest of my life or like a teenage boy uh, until I'm 50 years old? Or do I get back on uh, testosterone and just, you know, I made a bad decision and let me try to live with it the best way I can and try to fit in the best way I can? Or do I get back on the estrogen and start to do some uh, surgeries to kind of feminize? What's the best thing for me to do as a human being, because at some point, at some point, we have to, um, we have to care a little bit. These kids have been through enough. And so the intensity of me is because I am these kids at 50 years old. And so uh, being a parent myself, I don't think that, that people can see rent. People can't see around corners that they haven't been around with this, uh, and I can. And it's the reason why I, I'm so passionate with with this and, and these children. They're, they're just not doing well. In fact, yesterday, um, I, I got a, I got a, um, I got a voicemail from a, a German uh, trans man, 
And it was, you know, I had all these things on my phone. It was probably about 20 minutes. And, you know, it was a voice note. And I pressed the first one. And, and the first thing he said was, I know you're probably not going to listen to this, uh, this or that. I listened to the whole thing. I was crying by the time I got to the end of the man. It was just, <sighs> you know, and um, he started to medically transition when he was, um, I think, nine or 10. He got on food blockers. And um, now he's 23. And he doesn't know where to go or what to do. He says, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a man. I know I'll never be a man, but I'm not a woman anymore either. I'm, I'm something that doesn't exist. And he, he's asking me, who am I? He's so lost. And these are the people that people are taking advantage of. And I listened to the whole thing. And I wrote him back, you know, and I, I, and pretty much what I said was, sweetheart, listen, <laughs> you know, you were so right about male and female. But at this point, what I do for myself is just, you need to think of yourself as a soul. And all that other stuff doesn't matter. And you need to do what you need to do for yourself without anybody else talking to you. You need to do what is right for you beyond the headlines, beyond um, the activism, beyond the left and right, beyond the social media stars trying to make, make, you know, and I, I'm so thankful that I had someplace to send him, you know, beyond, uh, beyond D-trans, beyond trans, you know, with, with Genspec, because that's what these kids are. They're lost. They're lost. I want to hear this perspective because I've, uh, I've talked to, a bunch of the detransitioner um, um, from one well, several different countries, right? People reach out, people want to have conversations. I interviewed Chloe Cole once uh, for an article, heard a little bit of her story. Then this is a really interesting perspective to me because I've wondered before hearing some of the raw emotion during these testimonies. And I wondered like, how consistently can you endure that? Uh, and sometimes it reminds me of like, you know, if an alcoholic had a professional career just talking about all the booze he doesn't get to drink and all the suffering that he did, that wouldn't be emotionally or mentally healthy. It would cause a breakdown at some point because you can't talk about the most horrifying thing you've ever been through over and over and over again without some level of trauma being resustained. So when you see these... When you see these young detransitioners going out there, what do you think, A, our collective response should be, and B... Yeah, like how should we, how, how should, how should we treat them when, when they, when they come out and they want to tell their story and you've got this combination of this sort of repulsive social media world where recognition is validation and, and then they need, they want to tell their story. Some of them really want to tell their story because they want to prevent other people from going to the same thing. But there are people like yourself who are much more mature, much more capable of emotionally regulating and, and, and handling that. How do you think we should approach this whole mess? Cause I think this is something that everybody needs to hear. Yeah. Um, so you know, I've been doing this for five years. I've, I've been attacked by everybody. I've been attacked by feminists, but from everybody and, and, there's always like a, a misconception on top of, I had some growing to do as well. Um, but I have never promoted detransitioners. And I think people think that I don't believe in detrans or I think it's a bad idea. That's not the case at all. The case is, is that I understand what these, these people are going through. I understand that, um, 
being pulled into this at 11 is completely different than being pulled into this at 42. You know, I have a base that, that, that these people don't have. So for me, if you follow me for, for five years, you'll, you'll find out that I do not promote detransitioners. Now, I, I do do like speeches with them and, and that kind of stuff, but I do not push them. I do not talk to them. I do not ask them to write for me. Um, I, they just know that they can come to me when, when they need to. And, and it's, 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 there's a timeline that it happens. You know, at first they always, uh, you know, they have a tendency to kind of attack me and, and about not detransitioning. And then it comes back around to, you know, I'm the, the person they go to at the end. Um, and so I want that avenue to be open. And that's the reason why that I do not push detransitions. I also um, have a rule. I do not promote, talk about, or put any pressure on any T-transitioner that is under 25, hmm. period. Why 25? Period. Uh, well, that's when your brain fully develops and, and you're, you're, you're an adult at that point. Now, I do not also promote uh, detransitioners that are over 25 that have been detrans less than three years. And the reason why is because, um, you know, of, of, of everything that, that I talked about. What we're seeing, and it's starting to come out, it hasn't really hit the news yet, but a lot of these detransitioners, these girls, are transitioning back. And, you know, they're transitioning back, not because they would do it again, not because it was the right decision for them to do, um, not because it was positive in any way. But how are we to expect somebody to look like, you know, when, when males go through, go through puberty, right? Uh, my son's 15. He's right at it right now. I call him, he looks like a lesbian. You know, I mean, he looks like a butch lesbian, right? You know, you go through that stage where your, your voice starts to go down and, and uh, you know, you've got that kind of still pretty, you know, childhood look. And then, you know, you're getting a little bit of testosterone. You know, it's, I call it the butch look. Um, and so a lot of these detransition girls are in that stage. And if they, you know, no longer take testosterone, that's where they will stay. And so that is why when um, a man medically transitions, they don't pass very well and girls can pass pretty well. Um, and the reason why is because, right, estrogen is a blocker. So it blocks all those things. You know, when you take testosterone, that block comes off. There are some things that are timeline, like the bones and stuff. It doesn't make you uh, bigger, but it'll make your hair grow, all that kind of stuff. It changes the bone structure in your face, so you look different. The, the skin changes. Um, it's it's kind of wild to, to go through that process. So um, when you grow that with testosterone, that doesn't go away. So, you know, being there for, for, for these detransitioners, regardless of what they decide to do that is best for them. And it's kind of a place where I tell people to just love them, just love them and be really, really careful with the advice that you give them. Be really, really careful what you promote and don't promote and think of them as your child. You would want them to, um, to flourish. Think of them as your child. And if you are talking to a detransitioner or you're interviewing a detransitioner, journalists know this about me. They want me to, you know, reach out to, to detransitioners. I don't, and I read them the riot act. I write, I write these journalists that write these, uh, you know, articles. Shame them, you know, for doing so. Lazy journalism. You're, you know, taking advantage of these kids before. I'm, a, you know, I'm, I'm not quiet with this at all. Um, but love these kids where they 
are and listen to them. And one of the things that I, that I do with detransitioners when they, when they reach out to me, because they ultimately do, and most of them do, uh, in a very, very bad place. And it's mostly about should I transition back or who am I or this or that. And so for me, I step back and I you know, ask them, well, emotions change, right? Obviously. Um, but we can find a consistency of emotion if we, if we follow it for a certain period of time. So why don't you take six months of your life and go out and get a calendar, like a big calendar, put it in your room. And every night before you go to bed, you write down, I'm glad I, I you know, detransitioned or I would go back because I don't want to, you know, look like a 17 year old, whatever it is, write one sentence about that day, about how you feel and what you think you should be doing or what you consider and just write it down and let it go. And then come back to that in six months and you will find your answer, but you won't find the right answer asking anybody but yourself. So with the, with the, the detransitioners, because one of the things that I've wondered watching the way this unfolds online is that, so yes, you have the people who want to put them in front of a microphone, right? Um, and then secondarily, you have a lot of journalists who are on what looks to me like a search and destroy mission, which is let's go through what's very obviously a mentally and emotionally turbulent past half decade and try to find something to discredit them. And then just like after transition has begun, any step to detransition is enormously consequential because people are following that decision. You've maybe talked about it on TikTok or social media for a detransitioner who now has a microphone and is talking about that at say, you know, a rally, et cetera. Now they have another audience who's also invested in their detransition. And so you're saying that no, going public, allowing them to find themselves without an audience invested in a personal decision. Am I hearing you correctly on that? That they should just step away. Yeah. Hmm. I think people should step away. I do. I think that that uh, they should step away from detransitions that are uh, under twenty five or over twenty five, not detrans past few years, uh, because they're they're just perpetuating mental illness. You know, again, is what they're doing. And um, you know, for for you to get the accolations and the the spotlight that you need uh, to be one way or another is wrong. And one thing, if you if you followed me for five years, you'll realize that that I do not I do not stand down. I don't change. Um, I call myself transgender because I created something that cannot be uncreated. It doesn't matter if I think it was a good idea or not. It's I did it. You can't say that it's permanent. And then when you do it, go yeah, you can go back. Um, so at some point, we have to basically. Um, be decent human beings. And I am probably, <laughs> honestly, I'm probably one of the strongest people I've, I've ever met in my life. And this has jogged me. And uh, me doing what I'm doing is hard as hell. Um, and like I said, I'm probably one of the strongest people I know. Um, and you hit some things that most people don't about how hard this is to do. Um, it's not easy. It's not fun. Um, you know, I, I don't allow any community to tag on to me. Um, you know, when I first came out, you know, all the communities wanted to basically, you know, grab me and spotlight me and, you know, you know, feminists, uh, but no, I'm not going to say I'm D-trans. Then, you know, all of a sudden I get attacked by them. 
you know, evangelicals, oh, you're detached, no, I'm not, then I, you know, get attacked by, you know, I'm going to hell. Uh, then the gay people are like, you know, you, you sold us out, you know, we hate you. And then, you know, the liberals are like, oh my God, you're a conservative. You like Matt Wallace, you're, you're a horrible person. And, you know, so I don't belong to any community. And I do that for a reason. I do that because it makes me effective but it makes it so much harder to do so because I don't have anybody that supports me. I don't have, uh, you know, something to go back on uh, a community. I'm a community of one. If you support me, no matter what community you're in, there are going to be people that go, why did you support Scott? You know, you know, take evangelicals. Why do you support Scott? He, he, he's okay with homosexuality. What's wrong with you? You know, you shouldn't support him. You're supporting a gay person that you should be doing that. Or, you know, a liberal, like, why would you, why are you supporting, uh, why are you supporting Scott? He talks to the evangelicals that you shouldn't be supporting somebody like that. And this is the problem within our society right there. Because with society, uh, society is like one big family. And we used to be this way a lot more than, than we, we are now. Never perfect, but in our family. We've got our parents, we've got our siblings, we've got our cousins, we've got our, you know, close friends that our family, we've got, you know, all these people that circle around us that we have no uh, say in who they are. We have no say in who our parents are. We have no say in who our siblings are. Uh, we have no say in, in who our children would be, our cousins or this or that. And so we've got this huge community of family that has different opinions, uh, that has different uh, ways they attack life. They have different ideas about what's right, what's wrong, what's religion, homosexuality, about Republican, about Democrat. It's a whole mixing board of human beings. Now, within that, there are people that we really, really disagree on. But it's really hard to hate somebody like a mom that you know her whole life. Let's say she doesn't lean the same way with, with you. So you let that go because you have that love for her. You have that kind of... Um, compassion and care and you just go oh yeah that's mom and so we need to get to a place where we get back to that with social media where we think of society as one big huge family there are very very few psychopathic narcissistic horrible human beings there are some there are some but very few people most of us are just trying to live within our life so if we're able to kind of pull that down and just realize and give people the permission to not agree with us without using it as a weapon, without using it as a business model for social media, without using it uh, to gain something from somebody, if we can just go, Jonathan, I don't agree with you on that. And that's okay. I still love you as a human being. I still think you're worthy. I don't think you're right. Let's discuss it. Okay, we still don't agree on it. Let's put that aside and just love each other as human beings and know that you have just as much power and love and opportunity in this life that I do. Just because we disagree doesn't make us, you or me, intrinsically evil. We have to get back to that. You're carrying a lot of heavy stuff for a lot of people. What made you What made you decide to come out and speak about this publicly? Because you've described, you say it's embarrassing, it's excruciating. I've seen your testimony at a bunch of different legislatures and some speeches that you've done, and I've followed you on social media. Uh, so I've seen some of the debates and the discussions you've had. What made you decide to go public knowing that a you'd be putting a bullseye on your back, but b that you weren't going to that you weren't going to join any specific community, so you would be doing it as the lone ranger rather than somebody with a posse you could call on. 
Yeah, you're right. That's actually, you're very right. I don't have imposter, but you know, after five years, I think I've grown on people. So people are, you know, starting to come back around because <laughs> I, don't, I don't change, but, and that's actually felt really good, honestly. Um, you know, there, there is a reason and I'm, I'm not a self, I'm not a selfless person at all, at all. I'm actually kind of, uh, you know, kind of cocky and kind of into myself and in a lot of different ways. I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a selfless person. Um, so, so there is a reason. Um, after, after my surgery, I had a, the last surgery, which was the phallioplasty. Um, I had a, a, a stress-induced heart attack. By, uh, I had a pulmonary embolism, huge pulmonary embolism. Um, I had a stress-induced heart attack. Um, lung damage, heart damage after that. Then um, I had sepsis uh, a couple of days later back in the hospital. Um, then I had a ligament that was protruding. I had to have you know, arm reconstructing surgery. It didn't work. Um, then after that, I, uh, started not to feel well and nobody could, could figure out why. And it was at that point when I realized that the surgeon that I had, uh, Dr. Curtis Crane had like nine medical malpractices cases in California. Um, and I learned a whole bunch about him. So I didn't really, I didn't trust, I didn't want him to, to help me anymore because he's hurt so many people. Um, but I, I found out real fast that, uh, it's experimental because there's not very many people that know doctors that know what to do or why uh you know things would happen so i started to get like a reoccurring infection that was so bad uh that i lost my job so bad that i had to uh, move so bad that i lost my uh, house my car um and i had to get on uh, state-funded health insurance and again i realized that you know state health funded insurance that nobody knew what was wrong with me and the only person that could help me was out of the state and so um, I had a reoccurring, basically, sepsis infection for 17 months. So I would get on antibiotics, feel a little bit better, and then, you know, I, I would get, you know, go under. But nobody knew what was wrong with me. Um, and so the only place that I could get help was, was in the ER. So I started to, um, you know, I'd go to the hospital on the weekends and then, you know, come back out and try to find a job. And I finally got a job and realized that I had to work for three months uh, to get insurance to have somebody help me outside of the state. Um, felt horrible. Just, I couldn't sleep. I had, uh, had sleep induced hallucinations. Um, I was on and off antibiotics and nobody could figure out why I'd go into the, you know, ER and it would be from one doctor to another and they wouldn't know what was doing. And they would, you know, put me in the hospital on Friday, not want me to leave. And I had to go back to work. And, uh, it got so bad that, uh, towards the end I had a, uh, IV tube in front. Finally, one of the surgeons, one of the doctors at the ER said that, you know what, I'm just going to put this thing in you that, that we put in um, cancer patients, you know, IV thing that stays in. And so I went home with that. And then every day before work, I would go in and get IV antibiotics. And um, there was a night and I was, I was selling, um, I was selling windows, if you can believe it, um, just trying to do something. And I remember uh, the, the night that um, I was trying to sell these windows, I had blood running down my, my leg. And um, the, the lady and the man, one was a nurse and, and she looked at me and she goes, you know, I, she goes, you know, you're dying. Right. And I, I knew that I was, you know, I mean, I was just, just, I looked horrible. And she goes, what is wrong with you? Why are you doing this? Why are you not in the hospital? And she saw my IV thing and, um, you know, I just kind of broke down and, and, and I went home that night and I sat on the toilet and I tried to pee. And um, I had six inches of hair, which I didn't know. I had six inches of hair on the inside of my urethra. So, I mean, if you just think of uh, like a, a hair follicle that gets stuck in your skin and gets, you know, infected and it hurts and just think of that with, you know, pee. And then when it, 
you know, it moves in there. So sometimes it would stick and it would just be terrible. And it was just a horrible, and sometimes to pee, it was just like, it was razor blades, horrible. And I passed out. And um, I woke up in my own urine and blood and I, and I realized that um, I'm dying. Uh, not that I could die or maybe it's a possibility. It was kind of like, I'm dying. I know I'm dying. And um, I had this sense of relief that just came over me. Absolute relief. Like all of this, the whole life of, you know, being gay, of, you know, having child abuse, of, you know, the whole transing thing, the, you know, never fitting in, all that kind of stuff. It was just like, it was just this relief came over me that um, I didn't have to fight anymore. And uh, I started to think about my children, I have three children, and, um, you know, as they were older. And then I got to the point where they were at the age they were at when I, you know, woke up on the floor. And, that instantly went from a happy thought to just howls of, I'm not going to leave them. I, I realized what would happen to my kids if I left them. Um, and it was at that moment that I promised God, I'm not a Christian, but I promised God, I just, whoever, society, that if they could figure out how to find the surgeon, to have them find what was wrong, that I would do everything I possibly could to... Um, I thought it was going to be to out the surgeon or out the surgeon. I found out relatively quickly um, that it was the medicalization of children. So as soon as I made that promise, it was almost like within a two weeks, things got figured out. And I realized that that um, promise I made is circled around my children. So I'm here and I won't stop until every child everywhere is safe because my kids are tied to it. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. Now, you're very blunt. You're very honest. Your testimony is really, really for... Do you think that this transgender movement can be beaten? Yeah, it will be. Yeah. Why are you so certain? They seem so powerful. Mm. Because um, the media is suppressing stuff, right? Uh the carnage is coming up. So, you know, it took a long time for, for homosexuality to get accepted and kind of, and still not, you know, we still have a far way to go. Um, but there was, there was a spilling point at which people kind of go, okay, I got it. Right. I got it. Um, it's going to be the same thing. So here's what's going to happen with the uh, transgender thing. The, the carnage, the suicides are going to start to, they're not going to be able to suppress them. Like, um, you know, just Google suicide, trans suicide. You see it all the time. It's not the people that are not being medically transitioned. It's the ones that are transitioned that are killing themselves, right? Um, once that starts to get to the point where the media covers it, uh, the whole Elon Musk taking over uh, Twitter is, you know, I mean, just in a couple of months, it's turned it on its head, right? Uh, I got kicked off all the time because of it. So there's going to be so much carnage that people are not going to be able to look away. And it's, it's starting to get to that point. On top of what you're going to see is, and if there's a journalist that I talk to, she always says that I have a crystal ball. And maybe it's business sales or I don't know. I can see things with, you know, emotions where it's happening. I predicted the, um, the violence about six months ago. I said, you know, as soon as they start to get pushed back and the whole unicorn farts doesn't work, we're going to start seeing people get killed. We're going to start seeing people uh, become violent and bingo. Here's what's happened. So they're going to step on their own self. So the psychopathic, narcissistic, you know, you know, fetish men 
are, are going to actually um, fall on themselves pretty soon. And they are. And so people are going, society are going to see that the people that are being attacked are not the transgender people. The people that are being attacked are being attacked by transgender people. No transgender shoes. We've had four shooters in the last uh, 11 or 12 months. And of that, there's only 14 shooters in the United States. Four of them are transgender. That's 28% of uh, trans shooters in the United States are transgender people. Uh, population that's 0.06%. You can't look away from that too long uh, because now they've, they've clicked over into killing themselves. Now, with this in mind, you, I, I'm never black and white. I do believe that there are some people that do medically transition and do find some comfort in it and are sane and it helps them. Um, and they need to have that opportunity afforded to them. They need to pay it for themselves. They need to know that it doesn't fix anything and they need to know that it's an illusion. Basically everybody that we're allowing to medically transition now should be disqualified. And the people that should be able to do that should understand that it is no different than getting a boob job. It's no different than getting a facelift. It's no different than getting hair plugs. It's no different. It might help people feel a little bit better, but it doesn't cure anything. And we will have to get there soon because the carnage is going to spill over. It's going to spill over big time. And, you know, I said Susie from Mermaids was going to you know, have to step down, which she did. Um, my next thing in the next six months, we're going to see pharmaceutical executives going to prison. We're going to see politicians going to prison. Uh, we're going to see the, uh, the prison doors shutting in the next six months to a year. It's bad what's happening. Thank you so much for, for taking the time. You've been very generous with your time. All right. You take care. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Scott Nugent, a biological woman who transitioned at the age of 42 and now campaigns against gender transition, especially and specifically the medicalization of childhood. Those of you who want to check out other podcasts, you can go to lifesightnews.com and click on the podcast tab, or you can find this podcast wherever you get your content. Thank you very much for listening this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.